Perfect. All right. Well, we're glad you all could be here. Glad you guys made it out. We're glad you guys braved the cold weather and whatnot. I am excited to talk about today because now we're going to get, begin to transition just a little. We have been in this series for a long time. We've been basing this out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's talking about all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The reason we've hammered on this Scripture, the reason we have focused on this is because today in the church, this is no longer the source. This is no longer our source of truth, the guidance, or our understanding of who God is and what He's done. What has it become? Primarily, emotion. It's what feels good. The idea that God would bring judgment upon the world in any way is a foreign concept today. And in, in, in a, a lot of evangelical movements, and I use that term very loosely. The reason that we don't understand what God has done is because we argue about the ancillary ideas of what God has done in this. You see, without this, you have no idea who God is, what He's done, how, what His character is, how He will perform or anything. That's where we get these bad ideas that God moves in mysterious ways. And the thing is, He doesn't. He moves in predictable patterns. If it's mysterious, then when you pray to God for anything, you have no idea how He will respond. If it's mysterious, if we don't know. When you pray for salvation, to give your heart over to the Lord, you don't know how he's going to respond. Will he accept you or will he not? We don't know. You see, if that idea is true, the problem is, is we, we don't worry about what's truth. We worry about what feels good. And if it's true right now, if it makes me feel good, it's true for me, then I'm good. I will be comfortable in my own sin as long as I can justify it in some way. And the idea that we've been focused on primarily is the idea of healing. What does healing have to do with anything? Why is it such a big deal? I don't know if you've noticed or not, but healing was a big part of Jesus' ministry. It also happened to be a big part of the apostles' ministry. And Jesus said that greater things will you do because I go to the Father. So we have a problem because there is a commandment for, in, in James where it says, Is any of their sick among you? Let him call for the elders and he'll lay hands on them and the prayer of faith will make them well. But what is the point of doing that if we have no idea what the outcome will be? So what have we done? We began to justify these bad ideas to say, well, maybe it's not God's will to heal all. Or maybe that was at that time when James was the pastor in Jerusalem, but it's no longer the case today. We've moved on from that. God doesn't move that way. You know why? Because we have his written word. So you basically got a couple of different camps. You've got the camp that God doesn't do anything today. He doesn't move in that way. There's nothing supernatural per se. The only supernatural thing that happens is when one is transformed inside, they're born again. And then you're ultimately healed at your time in heaven. And then you've got the other camp that says that it is always God's will to heal at all times. Now, they both can't be right. They both can be wrong. Because they have ancillary views, they don't correspond with one another, so they both can't be true. So the problem we have is we have to decide, okay, according to Scripture, what does God say? Here's the thing. It's not according to what you think Scripture says. It's according to what it says. And so now we begin to turn our attention on the idea of what did Jesus' work on the cross include? In other words, underneath this new covenant is healing a right and an expectation that we should hold. Because if it's not, we're wasting our time on it. If it's not, then why pray for the sick? We just pray and hope. There is a well-known minister right now that just uh, he's, he's been diagnosed with heart failure. Well-known minister. He's probably not in the camp that a lot of you guys follow, but he's one that I, I happen to follow. And I respect this man tremendously. But he does not believe in the gifts and healings. He believes he's what's called a cessationist. He believes that God stopped doing all of that stuff. So God could possibly heal him if it is God's will. He's in that Calvinist camp. 
right now. Now, here's the thing. He is seeking the prayers of people. Pray for me that if it's God's will, that I will be made whole. Now, here's the problem. If it's God's will, what does your praying for him have to do with anything? You see the conflict in logic. Now, true, there are things that we may not know God's direct will in. But we do know as an overall, is it God's will that all should be saved? Absolutely. Will all be saved? No. Not a chance. Because some people will choose to reject him. God will never force somebody into his heaven against their will. You want a life of destruction? You want a life of pleasure on this earth versus uh, treasures in heaven? Hey, that's fine. I'm going to let you have that because I love you. We're going to come back to that thought. So is healing a right under the new covenant? Well, then we've turned our attention to Psalm 103, verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that was within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, here's the thing. When he says, don't forget his benefits, this is David talking, underneath the Mosaic covenant, which we know was a covenant with conditions upon it, of how, you know, how if you respond this way, God will respond that way. If you do good, you'll be good. If you do bad, you'll deal with judgment, okay? But here he says, don't forget God's benefits. And he says, who forgives your iniquities, and we believe that. Who heals all your diseases. Not some, and not talking about spiritual healing, because there's no way to mistake this. He heals them all. And David went in there with the belief that this is his right while he's pinning this. He's writing this down. Now, here's the question. Do we think the same way? We have to understand what a benefit is. If you take a job and it comes with benefits, say health benefits, what do you have to do to enter into that benefit? Really nothing. It is a part of what's coming with your employment. And as long as you're employed there, you have a right to this. That's literally what it means. A benefit means that it is out of the overflow of God. It's in addition to. But when they are offered and when they are given, it is your right to take them. Is it not? Is there any question I'm like, oh boy, I hope I have health insurance today. I got to go to the doctor. I hope I have health insurance today. No, if it is given, it is your right. So is healing the same way? According to David, it was, and that's underneath the old covenant. So what did this new covenant include? And what comes with this? So now we focused in the high priesthood and the day of atonement. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this stuff again, but we unpacked that uh, quite intensely as best I could in a two-week period. And the idea was is that underneath the Day of Atonement, it was one day a year, it was the most holy day of the year, where the high priest would have to go and he would have to first sacrifice for himself, bringing atoning upon himself and his family, cleansing himself. Then he steps into this role and representing the nation of Israel. And he would go in there and he would create these sacrifices, he would go in there and he cleanse them. There was the scapegoat, Azazel, they sent him off, all of that kind of stuff. I don't want to repeat all of that. That was... The Day of Atonement. And for one year, assuming that he did all correctly, the nation of Israel was once again atoned for until when? The following year. And they'd have to do it all over again because that dirt would come upon them one more time and they'd have to start the process all over. Even the things in the tabernacle at this point or the temple later on would have to be atoned for. He would go into the holy place and into into the most holy place. But what we see in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus became the high priest. But it wasn't after the order of Aaron. It was after the order of Melchizedek. 
And that was so crucial that we caught what was going on there. Because in order to be the high priest, you had to be of the line of Aaron. There was no other way around it. You could be a Levite and serve as a priest, but you couldn't be high priest unless your great-great-great-great-granddaddy was somehow connected to Aaron. It was the only way. And yet Jesus is called the high priest, but he does not qualify underneath the Mosaic Covenant. So how did we get there? Well, I told you that it seems to me, knowing that Caiaphas was the high priest chosen by the Romans, and that John the Baptist is an heir of Aaron, his mom and dad both, and Luke it talks about this, come from that lineage, that what if he was the one chosen by God to be the high priest? In other words, the forerunner. And I also told you that when one high priest went to the other, it was the passing of the baton, they would baptize him or mikvah them, thus turning the reins over. And we see when Jesus came to John to be baptized, John didn't want to do it. He's like, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. What if in that moment, that is the passing of the baton of the rightful high priest to the new high priest, thus instituting this new covenant? We know this. We know that in Matthew, Jesus says that the, old, the law and the prophets were until John, but since then the kingdom of heaven has been preached. What if that is what's going on? Now suddenly we have a new high priest, not after the order or the lineage of man, but the man chosen by God because we see Melchizedek had, his lineage was not given because it was irrelevant. This is prior to the Levitical law, the Mosaic covenant. So there's something different there. Jump to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. Let's look at this real quick. It says, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make for them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. He adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. You see, we have this tabernacle, and this is giving this idea here, because it says in verse 19, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Well, who entered the holiest? Do I have a picture of the tabernacle by chance? Can we put that up? There you go. The holiest, do I have my pointer? Or do I got to go up? My kids were playing with it yesterday as we're working on that back there. This is the holiest. Let me come up here. This is the holiest. This is the only place that the high priest, the only one could go into that place one day a year. And how did he enter in? With the blood of the goats. He entered in. Any priest could come into this area, no problem. They did the sacrifice out here. They would wash there. They would come in here. you got the menorah, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. But this is the veil. They said it was the size of a man's hand. It was that thick. It appears that there was no slit or opening because one is never described. So they believe that maybe it was something supernatural where he would just come in here. And in this place was the Ark of the Covenant with the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, the mercy seat being the throne of God. This is where the presence of God lies. So where did you find the presence of God? There. 
You didn't go look in the Philistine camp because it wasn't there. It was right there in that place. Later on, it became the temple, and it became there. But it was only him who entered in through the blood of goats that he would come into that place and serve as the high priest. He was doing his job. But Jesus talks about that he enters in by a new and living way. He consecrated for us through the veil, which is what? His flesh. In other words, where was the Father at? The presence of God. In there. How did you enter in under there? One man did, representing the nation of Israel. Now, we enter in through a new and living way, through the veil, which is His flesh. How do we come to the Father? Through Jesus. How many ways are there to get to the Father? There's only one. You guys see all these pictures that have been painted for so long? We've never thought about it in this light, but this is how it's painted. So if that's true, we enter boldly because we have been sprinkled, we have been cleaned, we are washed with pure water, and now we can enter in any time and we stir ourselves up when we come together because this is exciting. This is not exciting to you and I because we never lived underneath this type of, of regime. We take it for granted. But imagine being a Jewish man. Growing up, seeing these sacrifices for so long, knowing that you never get to enter into the presence of God. You couldn't. Only one man did. And suddenly, because of what Jesus did, everybody can. Look at Matthew 27, verse 51. It says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Why did the veil tear? Truth be told, the presence of God was no longer in there. It hadn't been for a long time. The presence of God on earth was Jesus. The presence of God had left the temple hundreds of years before this moment. They still performed all the, the sacrifices and all of that, but the presence of God wasn't there. The presence of God appears in Jesus. He's once again, he's with the people. Here we are. But that veil was torn because now there is no longer a separation between man and God. Why do I, again, do I say that there was likely no slit in it? Well, what would the significance of a tearing is? It'd be if there was already an opening to get into. doesn't make any sense. Imagine something the size of a man's hand, tearing it. It was torn. didn't fall. You ever try to tear like, do you ever guys get like a Hulk Hogan when you were kids and you grab the t-shirt and you rip it off? Am I the only one that did this? Okay, thank you. I mean, I wouldn't do it today because it's not pleasant, but... And what did you do? Because you couldn't often do it. You probably could because you were a stud. But most of us, normal human beings with normal average strength, couldn't pull something off like that. So we would cut it, you know, we would cheat so nobody could see. And we'd, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> you get it. It's all I ask. I just need one. I mean, that's the thing, is we have to read Hebrews as they read Hebrews, as if when they were writing to him, understanding it from this mindset of a Jewish person, of what is being said here, and what is being atoned, what that means. We cannot bring the filters of our denomination that we grew up in, or the way that we grew up in, and say, okay, this is what Jesus means by this. We have to read it in that way, because it's way more powerful. What do we care that a big curtain tore? We don't. This is kind of said in passing, but to a Jew, there's a problem. Because now, what, what happens when you enter into the presence of God? You die. So there's something going on. And this is how we have to look at Scripture to understand this. We have to read it and understand the words of God the way the writers and the early readers did. And that's where we're messed up. Because we don't understand the background. 
And we don't know our Old Testament. We know our New Testament. We like all of these, these different things that make us feel good. We think that Jesus died to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. And life is good. It's nothing but sunshine and lollipops from here on out. Never have to worry again. God has an amazing plan for your life. Come to Him. If we take up another offering, you'll be blessed. We want to try it and find out? I'm just curious. Anybody? No? Okay, fine. I mean, that's what we have today. You hear and these, these uh, churches preaching, they're like, God loves you the way that you are. You just come to Him. He's got an amazing plan for you. And it's like, why do I need to come from you? You just got done telling me for 30 minutes how great I am. Because we've missed the point. We don't understand the clean from the unclean, the holy from the unholy. And that is what has caused so much confusion today. So when it comes to the idea of healing, is it possible that we have the same problem? In other words, what did it mean to a Jewish person, this new covenant. So let's look at an example of something like this. I want to show you how this has worked in today's culture. Now, this is not the crux of what I'm talking about today. In fact, I don't want to even focus a ton of attention on it. But this is a good analogy, and it will help you guys to understand what I'm talking about. So let's talk about homosexuality. Okay? Homosexuality, what do we do with it? According to the modern church and the, and the activists and the progressive movement that's out there, God is love. And he loves you just the way that you are. And whatever is going on in, in your life, Jesus is there with you. And we, we look at Scripture and we say, well, God wasn't talking about homosexual relationships, like a monogamous relationship. He was talking about maybe a forced one or one with children. Because God is love. Is it true that God is love? Sure it is. But what does that mean? That's the thing. I don't think that word means what you think it means. So when we look at this, we have to go to two parts. Well, we turn to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. says, you should not lie with the male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Well, that doesn't sound very good. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with the male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Well, this is pretty harsh. What do we do with that, church? Well, that's not what God meant. You see, that's not talking about a committed homosexual relationship. That's not talking about two people that loved each other the way that God created them to be. Besides, that's Old Covenant. I mean, do you wear mixed fabrics? Do you eat shellfish? Do you eat pork? Do you trim the corners of your beard? Because if you're going to keep one commandment, you've got to keep them all, right? Another true statement. Besides, God is love. Look at Matthew, or Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What is the greatest commandment? We love God, and we love people. Right? In fact, it's on our sign out there as you walk in. It says, loving God, loving people. And if God is love and Jesus is love, you know Jesus never talked about homosexuality, which means he's okay with it because he knows what love is, and love is love. What do we do with this, church? Do you know that today, apparently I just read this, or my wife showed me this yesterday, that there is an LGBTQ activist that uh, has one of the top songs on the Christian charts right now. Don't ask me the name of the song or the name of the person. I couldn't tell you. But it's out there. Why is that? Well, because we just look at the songs. We don't look at who wrote them. 
who performs them. We don't care. We like the song, we just go. See, the problem is, is that we're not looking for what God has said. We're looking for what feels good. We will justify any behavior in our own mind as long as it feels good and it fits our narrative. So what have we just done? We've created a God in our own image. And this is what we've done in the church. And we have done this for years and years and years. And we wonder why people are confused. And we have a problem because we can't respond to this because he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, I do that. And love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I do that too. And I can't tell somebody what they should do with their life because love is love and God told me not to judge. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. So what do you do with this? Well, we've got to look at things from the eyes of the ones who wrote it and the ones who are reading it. Number one, what is love? Does love just have a free pass to do anything? We know the answer to that. The answer is no. If I love my children, I will tell them not to touch the hot stove. If I don't, hey, go nuts. Go play in traffic. It'll be fun. Dad, I want to smoke a rock a crack. I don't even know if I said that right, so correct me if I didn't. <laughs> sure, son, who am I to judge you? I mean, that's how idiotic this whole thing is. So if that is true, then we just let it go. But the problem is, is that what did Jesus say? Is it a true statement that Jesus never directly addressed homosexuality? It is a true statement. Is it a true statement that Jesus never directly addressed bestiality? That's a true statement. Is it a true statement that Jesus never directly addressed if you should buy a Prius? Is it a true statement that Jesus never directly addressed which stock you should buy? Where, how far down the trail are we going to go? On they back it up, it's like, well, but, okay, fine. We look at Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. The way he acted, the way he talked, and the way that he says things, that is how we live our lives. He is love. He had compassion, and he had mercy. So how do we respond to that? This is the problem. Because we have this mixed idea of what we're looking at, we come up with these off-the-wall ideas. Well, the thing is, is where did Jesus get this idea that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? He got it from the Old Testament. The other part is, and the second, like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? Well, let's see what he's quoting. That comes from Leviticus chapter 19. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, here's the question. If Jesus is quoting out of Leviticus as if it is the word of God, is it fair to say that he believes that Leviticus is the word of God? It seems to me that it would make sense. And if that's true, do we get to discount Leviticus altogether? Of course not. That's idiocy. In other words, Jesus believed it, so do I. Chapter 19 happens to be right in between chapter 18 and chapter 20. So basically what we're going to do is we're going to skip 18, we'll pick up 19, we'll skip 20, and we'll go about our day. You guys see how dumb this is? But that is where we're at today. Because we don't look at it from the lens of what was the expectation. So what was the expectation when Messiah came? What did they expect when he showed up? What were they waiting from their reigning king? What was he going to do? The thing that we understand is they were expecting him to restore Jerusalem to its rightful place, to be the king of all the world, and essentially bring back the Garden of Eden, where God ruled with man. Now, we know that that's going to happen, but they were thinking it was going to happen right then. So, when Jesus came on the earth, what did he do? He preached, he taught, and he healed. 
He did that everywhere he went. We saw the Messianic miracles. We talked about that. How, how did they know that he was Messiah? Because they saw the miracles. They were expecting only Messiah could perform. And John the Baptist was a witness to these. He baptized Jesus. He watched the Spirit of God come upon him and stay. That was a sign. That's Messiah. So John would never have any doubts, right? Well, look at John, or Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. John being in prison, and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, John's in prison. Things are not going well. This isn't the cushy prisons where you have cable and all this other stuff. It's a little different thing. So he sends the disciples saying, are you truly the Messiah, or do we wait for another? Why is he doubting now? I don't know. Could it be the circumstances he's in? It's hard to say. We don't know for sure. Jesus answered said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What was the marker that Jesus gave to these disciples to go tell John? The blind saw, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, how was Jesus confirming that he truly was Messiah? The healing of all these things. That was the marker. When Jesus came, when the Messiah came, this is what he was going to do. This was the expectation that they had. So would that be enough to convince John? Probably. I mean, there's no, nothing in Scripture ever said that he doubted from that point on or anything like that. We don't even understand exactly what was going on here. But the thing is, is what was the mark of the Messiah? Well, when he came, this is what he's going to do. Now, let's look at another place. And this is where we're going to kind of wrap this up. So I know this is a little shorter than normal. But if I went to the next phase, you would never go home. So look at Luke chapter 4. Because I'm going to read this and then I'm going to break it down so you understand what's going on. Because we missed some of the nuances here. But this is Jesus in the early days of his ministry. Verse 16, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Now, this is odd, and it's not odd if you just blow through it, but it's odd because he shows up for his hometown, Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue, which was his custom. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. Hey, read. It'd be no different than I said, hey, hey, Matt, will you come up here and read John 3.16 for us? And you all be, are you going to be like, oh, is that the dude with the mustache from Nebraska City? No. What was so perplexing? Why were they so blown away? What did he read? What is going on here? And this is where we miss it. Because as soon as he sits down, they're all staring at him. And they all be like, isn't that Joseph's son? Joseph, that Joseph? That's his son. That doesn't make sense. 
So what's going on? Well, it starts in the beginning. He comes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, so we know that. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. We have to understand what that means. First of all, what is a synagogue? Well, the synagogue started during the time of Ezra. After they came back from exile, the Jews were still dispersed. Most of them were. They come to Jerusalem, and so they set up this synagogue so that people didn't have to come to the temple each and every week because it was just... It wasn't realistic. It wasn't going to happen. So they essentially, what we would call church, set up these synagogues. In order to have one, you had to have 10 Jewish men in order to start one. And they had a formula which they would do. They would come up, they would sing songs, they would read something out of the law, something out of the prophets. Maybe you've heard the term Torah portions. Those would be read. But here's the thing. During the times of the exiles, many of the scrolls were destroyed. They didn't have books. They were scrolls. They were destroyed. They did not have these things. So the scribes began writing them down again. Do you know how long it would take to hand copy the book of Isaiah? A long time. And you know what happens when you make a mistake? You destroy it and start over. No pressure. I mean, that's what these guys did. So they would have these, um, these scrolls and they would keep them under lock and key. So in order to keep maintain this in case this were to ever happen again, each family was given a portion that they would read on a pre-described time, and when their family's time came up, they would show up and they would read from their portion. Which portion belonged to the family of Jesus? Isaiah 61, because that's what he read. You see, they didn't hand Jesus the scroll and say, hey, that's Jesus. Let's hear what he has to say. Let me tell you something, okay? If you show up on a Sunday morning and Jesus himself walks into this room, guess who's preaching that day? Not Chris. It's him, right? That's not what's going on because that's just Joseph's son. He's just fulfilling his duty. That's what's going on here. First of all, did Jesus ask for the book of Isaiah? No, it was handed to him. And this was the portion that belonged to his family. That's why it was read. When had that been set up? Probably hundreds of years in advance. Interesting. Then he reads out of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Who is this in reference to? Messiah. Clearly messianic. You notice he stopped there. Because the part that comes after this is about the day of vengeance of our God, and he's talking about the judgment, which is the second coming. So he reads this, nothing is happening. Nothing exciting is going on, he's just reading it. But what is the promise that's here? Gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to the captives, liberty to those who are oppressed. I mean, we're talking about a setting free of not just spiritually, but physically from the oppression that has come on. So he closes the book, he hands it back to the attendant, because again, they maintained the scrolls, you didn't take one home, you didn't bring one with you, and he sat down, and everybody stared at him. Why were they staring? Well, what you have to understand of why they're staring is where he sat, because he didn't just go back to his seat or his bench or whatever they had there. You see, there was a seat at the front of every synagogue, and I've seen this in, in archaeology i got a picture of it here. This is called the Seat of Moses. This is from the archaeological find of the synagogue in Cherazin. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but you guys remember Cherazin? Woe to you, Cherazin. Not good. But this was known as the Seat of Moses. 
And the seat of Moses was reserved for one person and one person only. You know who that person was? Not Moses. It was reserved for Messiah. Only Messiah sat there. Jesus reads a messianic prophecy. He sits down in the seat of Moses, which is reserved for Mosiah. And he says, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is he declaring? I'm here. Messiah is here. Now, that's powerful, right? Very powerful. We know that this was a big deal because look at Matthew chapter 23. Verse 1, it says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. What have they done? They have usurped the authority of the seat that belongs to Messiah. They sit in the seat of Moses. That's literally something that was taking place. Because it'd be no different. We put chairs up here and we like put special people and you get to sit in this seat today because of whatever reason you, you want. They took that authority upon themselves. And that's not even the coolest part because that's not the part that I want to focus on. I'm just giving you a little background information of what's going on. That's why they were all blown away. That's why they're staring. I'm like, isn't, this, isn't that Joseph's son? That's what's going on there. But it was what he said after that. Verse 20, he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now stop. He's sitting there at the front. They're all staring. He didn't start in that seat. That wasn't his seat of the day. He came up. He read. He sits down, and they are staring at him like, how dare you? You ever been in that situation where you know everybody's kind of looking at you like, I should not have said that. That's not what Jesus did. He doubles down. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that's when they begin to question because he's just declared himself Messiah. Now, here's the thing. At this point, had the gospel been preached to the poor? Not yet. Has he healed the brokenhearted? Not yet. Has he proclaimed liberty to all the captives? Not yet. This is still early. Has he uh, given sight to the blind? Not yet. I mean, there might be little pockets of things that have happened up to this point, but, but not necessarily yet. Has the liberty been uh, set for all who are oppressed? Not yet. Has he proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord? No, he has not done any of these, and yet he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I'm no expert in linguistics, but when you say something is fulfilled, that tends to mean that it is done. So if you said, hey, child, would you please go clean your room? And they walk out and they say, Father, it is fulfilled. Like if they talk that way, deal with that. But what does that mean to you? If I get up and I check, and it ain't done, boy. You notice I said boy, not girl, right? If it ain't done, boy, there's going to be consequences. Because when you say it is fulfilled, that means it is completed, right? I mean, isn't that what it means? Well, here's the problem. Jesus said this has been fulfilled in your hearing, and yet we know he's going to go out and do all of these things. That's a nuance in Scripture we often overlook. We need to know what that means and how that applies to Isaiah 53 and how that applies to the idea of healing. And you have to come next week to figure that out. So I'm just setting this up because, as I said, if I went any further, you'd never go home. But I want you to think about that. When Jesus say this has been fulfilled, where else does he say that and what does that mean? Okay?
Promise not to hate me until next week? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you.